0: Hi, and welcome to Shaky Sports Journeys. As always, you can find us by searching Shaky Sports Journeys on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean. Please do subscribe. Loads of different podcasts coming to you from all different ranges of sports, as well as crossing over to speak to other people from other walks of life. Today's guest, again, I'm under high pressure here today to get this introduction on point. This man is a master of ceremonies. You know, I'm sure lots of people will recognize him on screen already. I'm joined by none other than mad dog, John McDonald. How are you, sir? Good, thanks. I'm very good. How was that introduction? It's very good. No complaints. Good stuff. I'm glad to hear it. So, John, what I want to do today is I want to have a bit of a chat with you, get to know you a little bit better. We're all used to seeing you on screen, announcing, you know, but we don't. it would be good to get to know who you are and what makes you tick, et cetera. So I want to take you back to where you're from, where you're born, tell me a bit about your childhood, family background, et cetera.
1: John, you want me to tell you or are you going to tell me? No, I'd like you to tell me, sir. Okay, yeah, so it's, it's interesting because I had... um My dad had a family before he met my mum. My mum had a family before they met my dad, and then I came along, so it was the original Brady Bunch, really. And um, I was, I think if I have to be honest, um, I no longer have, I have one brother left and everybody else has passed away. So, you know, I think I'm quite safe to say that I was a bit of an accident. Um, When I look at the age of my dad and my mum when I was born, um, my dad had done everything by then. So never really had much interest in me. He was a big boxing and football fan and had boxed and played football. So I suppose that was a natural path for me as a kid. Um, I was born in a, back of a housing estate in South London, which, um, you know, had its good and downside. Um, It taught us some A-levels in life, which was always good. And then I moved around a lot. Um, I had a, uh, my parents had a difficult marriage and it was, um, I was sort of pushed around a little bit, which at the time seemed like an adventure. And uh, when I look back, the more I look back on it nowadays, I think probably, for me personally, it was probably a good thing that I did that, because it educates you very early. I seem to have done so much in my early life that, you know, most people still live in their lives. I think if I died tomorrow, I think I've achieved everything I want to achieve. You know, I've not, not really got any massive ambitions left. Uh, so family-wise, there's just me and a brother, um, which uh, I keep in touch with him on a regular basis, at least once or twice a week. But we had, for want of a better word, a good upbringing because you know i don't remember it being tough as such and i don't remember it being as difficult as people tell me it was um because i was very easily pleased as long as i could go outside and play uh that was me if it was football cricket we'd done everything with a lamppost we painted wickets on we had lampposts when there was no cars around we could play football in the street there's an old picture i've got at home of one of the streets we lived in and there was one car in it you know i mean that same street today would probably have 25 And uh, I I went to some good schools. My dad got a a good job um, just outside of London. And we moved to Kingston-upon-Thames and just had the most brilliant time there. It was a lovely suburb of London and it had everything and good schools. And so I've got quite fond memories really of having nothing but having everything, if you know what I mean. But Sport played a big part in my life. I wanted to be a sportsman. I tried everything. I I was not a bad junior boxer. I wasn't a very good senior boxer. I was... I did martial arts. I did everything that excited me. I got into judo um, and was still playing up until a few years ago, in fact, and it just gets so hard nowadays when you get thrown around by youngsters. So that sort of took the back burner a bit now. But um, if I have to be brutally honest, I think football was my, my big thing. I wanted to be a footballer. I was a really brave goalkeeper um, as a junior, but I never grew. And when I went to senior school first couple of years, it was a, easy got in the team no problem but as we got older and kids got taller and they got better you know I was struggling to get in and I didn't really know what I wanted to do and in them days you could leave school at 16 I'm an August baby so I was always the youngest in the class and um, I would should have really I suppose if I think about it my parents should really have insisted that I went in the year below where i had been the oldest in the class I think it probably would have given me a better chance but you know you have to get on with it It's only a matter of months, but as a child, it means a lot. So um, I left school very young, really. I was about 14, 13 or 14. I had no real interest in school at all. And I wanted to work. I wanted to do something. And I was just excited by adventure, really, more than anything. And the army seemed the the obvious um, place. They didn't require any qualifications. You could literally walk into a careers office tell him your story, and I think, you know, sign here, son, and away you go. I remember going to the careers office and I said, I don't have much of an education. He said, don't worry about that, I'll show you what to put. So he sat over my right side and said, put a six there, circle that, put a tick there, fill in that box, cross that out, do this, do that. And I remember I got 100%. When I went to the army assessment center, they're like, well, you're sort of quite a clever kid. I'm not, believe me, I'm not, you know. I think they realised after a little while that I'd had this test done for me. And in them days, you was in in no time. And they had a junior service then. So that was me. I was set. And um, probably for the first time in my life, I was grounded as well. I I realised that you just couldn't do what you wanted to do. And there were rules and regulations. And you couldn't just do what you wanted. It was done in a system. And at at first, it was a big shock. And then it became something that I became very accustomed to. And I quite liked. And that was my career. And if you speak to anybody that knew me in them early days, and I do speak to some people that really look, guided me through, and they're quite old now, and they all said um, they thought I would do okay because I had picked, up, picked it up very quickly. So that was me in the military. I thought it was great, loved it. I joined the parachute regiment, which, you know, wasn't the easiest, but we were kids. And so our fitness levels were very, very good. And I went to my recruit training, flew through, and um, went to my battalion. And that was the start of my career. Unfortunately for me, I had a a bad parachute accident in 1979 and only served served a handful of years, um, which rendered me in a London hospital. Um, I probably went to five or six hospitals uh, during that period. uh, All of them uh, trying their best to work out the best way to deal with a major trauma like a broken neck which I had and um, so for me personally, you know, that was a major blow. That was probably the biggest blow I've had in my life. And I'm laying in a hospital bed thinking, what am I going to do now? You know, I'm 21 years old, 20 years old. What am I going to do?
0: If you don't mind Uh, me asking asking, John, what happened?
1: Well, so I I had, um, there was a new parachute out and and, um, it had uh, a few complications at first and I was in the air. Um, I had a container still on me and um, I had twisting the chute, it was at night, and uh, I had stolen air. Somebody had gone right underneath me and stole my air, so my chute collapsed and, and I was too close to the ground for it to reopen. And the next thing I remember as I'm hurtling to the ground, trying to release the container, trying to get out of trouble, I hit the ground. I was found the next morning. Um, this was at night, so I was found the next morning and um, and I was in all kinds of trouble. I woke up in a hospital about five days later from an induced coma and a very hungry, mouth full of dirt, lost some of my teeth, broke my nose, broke my jaw, collarbone, fractured ribs, internal bleeding, broke my neck, and the C6 and C5 vertebrae were crushed, broke my right ankle. Um, pretty much every part of my body ached, uh, not as much as my ankle. My ankle really hurt. And it's always hurt since that day. But for some reason, there's nothing wrong with it, you know, but it just kills me at times. And um, I remember going to an inquiry and they said, you know, would you like to explain your current situation? I said, my right ankle is killing me. They're like, really? You know, I said, oh, that, that, that's there all the time. The pain in your neck and your back. Yeah, that's, that's a given, but this right foot. So that was me out. Um, I had a medical discharge. Didn't really know what to do. Uh, I had a, um, a really nice education officer that tried very hard. Um, he, he tried to get me into other things because he thought it was a bit of a waste of talent, really, at that young age. You know, I would picked a lot of things up very quickly and was doing very well. And he was like, where do you go? And what do you want to do? And I said, well, I love sport. And I did everything in that unit, everything from cross country running to boxing to football. I loved it. And it's a great excuse for a sportsman to get in the military or any of the tri-services. You know, you heard the rumours. If you're good at a sport, you normally sail through your career. And and that was me. I was into everything. And uh, if you can't do that, what will you do? And I was, I'm not really too sure. But I loved boxing and I'd always loved boxing. I was involved in the team and I knew everybody in the team. And I knew every amateur club and I knew every amateur boxer. And I thought, maybe there's a position for me somewhere. So I took up photography and it was um, in those days, there was nobody really concentrating on boxing. So there would be a local newspaper, maybe covering an event, but there's nobody really concentrating boxing, concentrated on boxing that could promote boxing more. So the then editor of the boxing news, a guy called Tim Riley who anybody that knows boxing will know very well. He was followed by a guy called Harry Mull, and I worked for both of them. Um, they were just keen for me to cover shows because, you know, they didn't pay very much or if anything, they never had any money. And I was just doing it for experience and, and I met some great people. And I did that for 14 years. And in fact, after only a short while, I ended up with this great job at the BBC. And I went to the BBC, having covered one boxing show for them, and I kind of went there and said, well, did you like what I did? If you did, could I do some more work? And they were like, "Okay." And I ended up working in the News and Current Affairs Department. And I did everything from the Zeebrugge disaster to the Pan Am jet disaster at Lockerbie to the Bangladesh floods. You know, everything that happened in those dreadful years, in those 80s, I was there. And it was great experience, but I always knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. By then I'd grown a family. I now have four sons and six grandchildren and it was very, very difficult to try and balance the book. So I was always looking for something different. And a fast forward to show, I suppose the best way for me to explain it was, I was always messing around, um, doing different voices, impressions of people at boxing, Making the ringside staff laugh and joke. And one guy said to me, why don't you do it? And I was like, really? Yeah, why don't you try And I didn't really, I wasn't really that confident. And I didn't really think it was what I wanted to do. I thought maybe I would take some admin role within the boxing, maybe work for a promoter or do something else. But in 1992, I... I finally decided to have a stab, let's have a go. So I went to the British Boxing Board of Control and they all knew me because they'd seen me at every show. Um, what are you gonna do? I said, Why well, I fancy being an announcer? I didn't really know what they did. You know, I knew the boxing announcer got in, but I didn't know what anyone else did. And um, I did it and I auditioned and I got the license. There was very few people did it then days and I, Would be sitting at ringside frustrated having traveled the world a little bit with boxing, been to America, been to Europe, and thought they do it in a, they got razzmatazz. they really make it something special. How can I do that? You know, so I thought maybe I copy them, you know, and it will be great. And I was very over the top and very inexperienced, but very enthusiastic. I was getting a lot of things right. Because I was going and talking to the boxers And I wouldn't just say, you know, in the blue corner Wearing the white trunks, Wade 9stone6 John Smith, you know, I'd find out Where he lived and I'd mention his village And I'd work a little bit on the Career, and if he'd had 76 Fights and lost 50, I'd say Things like taking part in his 77th contest, no one needs to Know he's lost 50, you know, I'm trying to help Him, you know, and I I got my Own sort of way of doing it And, uh I was very lucky because um, I got seen by um, a few promoters that were working and they're like, this guy's a bit different. And uh, before I knew where I was, I was uh, freelancing and working for two or three promoters. I suppose the big break came in about 96. Um, I got a phone call from Barry Hurton. And who I'd known because I'd covered the snooker and I'd covered the boxing. I was at his first show in 1987. He was actually part of the promotional team that put on Joe Bubner and Frank Bruno, which was a great big fight them days at White Hart Lane, at the old White Hart Lane Stadium in front of God knows how many thousand people. It was a great show. And I always liked Barry's enthusiasm and his age. He was always in the mix. He was quite, he was up. He was always the type of bloke you just knew it was good hanging around with him. He was always good fun. And uh, he called me and said, look, can you do this show for me? And I was like, sure. But I actually phoned him and said, you know, Barry, I'm an announcer now. He said, yeah, somebody told me you're doing some of that. That's great news. But you know, I'm very loyal and I have a guy. And I said, okay, no, I like that. But if you ever need any help, you know where to find me. So with that. Barry gives me this call and says, the next conversation you're gonna have is with my head of boxing and he'll speak to you. And I was very excited. And I was even more excited when I found out it was Joe Kawasaki's first attempt at a title. And I thought, wow, I'd always been impressed with Joe. I knew his family, I knew his father. I knew Joe from a young boy, I'd watched the boxing. I knew my boxing, you see, that's the difference. If you know a subject and you love a subject, you follow a subject. You, I knew who Kowalski was and I knew how good he was. I would speak to people and uh, die gardener was very knowledgeable Welsh boxing trainer and manager. They would say, he's good. And I'd say, how good? They say, he's the real thing. I'd say, oh, that's good enough for me. I don't need to know anything else. He's told me that. So I become somewhat of an aficionado of, of different boxers. I knew who was any good. And... uh I got to the show early. I was very excited. And um, Barry came nice and early, as he always did. And we had it all under control. And then suddenly, the guy who ran the boxing for him, John Wischusen, who became a lifelong friend, he's only just left Matchroom. Um, he's doing his own thing now, but he had a, 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 over 27, 28 years there. He said to me, we have no paramedics. And I was like, what, you know, we all know the importance of that. There's no way this show can go especially,
0: on. Aside. Especially at a boxing event.
1: It's crucial. I mean, so, yeah. you know, but for some reason there had been some communication breakdown. Of course, nothing to do with me. I'd just come turned up on the date, never even met them. I'd seen them at press conferences and things. These people that were in the administration for Barry but I didn't really know them. And uh, But I knew one of the doctors that was there i'd recommended this doctor to the boxing board of control because he was training to be a plastic surgeon and he needed to go to america to get specialist training that he had to pay for so he was looking for jobs he was looking to work at football rugby boxing, wherever he could get extra and i said why don't you go to the board his name's professor paul banwell um he at the time he was dr paul banwell and he was working in A&E somewhere, but he was working on plastic surgery. A very, very nice man. A great doctor. And uh, he was at the boxing. And I went over to him and I said, look, we got a problem. We've got hold of this team of paramedics that can come and cover the fight. But they're the other side of London. Would you kindly give them permission to come on a blue light so they could get here in the next half an hour and we just start late? You know? We'll still be on air before... The TV time. So I'm working f- beavering away in the background. And uh, I said to John, John, I've got it. They're coming. They're going to be here. He's like, OK, Barry comes over. What's going on? So I immediately make up an excuse. Well, Barry, what it is. And John stopped me. And he said, John, listen, you're working for us now. We tell the truth. Barry, there's been some communication breakdown." Nobody had booked them, but they're on their way. And I'm like, what? Don't tell him the truth, you lunatic. So Barry looked at me and John looked at me and said, if you ever want to work for Matrim Sport, the biggest principle, the number one principle, tell the truth. And I made a pact with them and myself, and I'm going to tell you straight, since that day, it is what it is. Black and white. Black and white. It might not be what you want to hear, but it's the truth. And I learned that. And I thought, right, you've made me look this big. I'm going to prove to you I can make myself look this big. I'm going to continue in your your prophecy. They came, the paramedics. We got the fight underway. Kawasaki was magnificent. It was a great show. Barry went back to work on the Monday. And like they always do at Matchroom, they have a debrief. So what happened there? So there was a guy, a young director, TV director, worked for Matrim called Martin Marks, who sadly passed away only a couple of years ago. The world was uh, uh, um, uh, stolen a great young talent when they took his life, and um, he said to Barry, "What did you think of the announcer?" And Barry said, "Well, I know him. You know, he, he is what he is. He done it. You know, he does what I knew he would do for me. You know, it's." No big deal. And Martin said, I thought he was great. We've got a brand new show coming up called the World Cup of Pool. Well, I'd only ever played pool in a pub. I didn't have the slightest idea what this World Championship of Pool, 196 players from 57 countries. I was like, what? 12 days work in a sports centre in Cardiff. I'm thinking, goodness me. Of course, it was do 12 boxing shows could take you a year. So I thought, well, if they got as much confidence in me as I have in them, I'll do it. Anyway, I went and done it. And um, it was a major success um, and still is a great show. uh, Very exciting. And they, of course, brought Razzmatazz. We had one guy came on a motorbike. We forgot that when you drive a motorbike indoors... Everybody's going to be going, (coughs) coughing their guts up for the next half an hour as the exhaust fumes are filling the arena. That didn't seem to matter. It was absolutely magic. And I was very, very lucky. I was still working for Frank Maloney and different people on the boxing. And uh, I had a promoter in Liverpool, a guy called John Highland, who tells the story better than me. And he had booked me to do a world title fight in Liverpool on ITV. And I looked in my diary, and I always had this policy: whoever books me, I'm booked. And you could give me a million pound job, but I'm staying with that booking because that's the only way you could have loyalty in this business. You can't, yep. you cannot be on EastEnders and Coronation Street the same night, right? It's really so true. You can only do one thing at a time. So I'd agreed to John that I would do the show. And Frank Maloney phoned me up and said, we with a week's notice, incidentally, and said, we have a show on the 21st of November. And I said, I'm already booked. And he said, if you do that show and don't work for me, you'll never work again. And I said, terrific. Bye-bye. And I put the phone down and I thought, you know what? Even though I haven't been doing this very long, no one will ever speak to me like that. I'm doing what? I said I would do. What I didn't know was that John Highland obviously had a good breast of what was going on. I'd been away in America for two weeks. And when I came back, all of this happened. And he said to me, um, what will you be doing on the 21st of October, November, whenever it was. And I said, I'm coming to do your show. And he was on speakerphone in his office. And he said, did you hear that everybody? You see, that's my friend. I knew he wouldn't let me down. I knew it. And he said, you're on speakerphone. I'm just telling all these people that work with me about loyalty and I trust you. And I knew you wouldn't let me down. Barry called me about a week later and said, have you just resigned or you're not working with Maloney no more? I told Barry the story and Barry was very impressed because, you know, loyalty is a very important thing. And I've had to learn it over the years because there is no loyalty. You know, they always say in boxing, if you want loyalty, buy a dog. (laughs) You know, you get all these great sayings, don't you? But, you know, most of them are true. And I appreciate that people have got to do the best for them. But there must be ethics amongst thieves. You know, there's got to be some rules, some policy to follow. I think Barry was very, very impressed by that move. And um, the Moscone Cup come up. It was a yearly thing, one Christmas, every always at Christmas. And I did that. And he'd, and I brought a kind of, he would always, His great asset, Barry, is he'll always employ the right people. He never tells you. He might give you a bit of advice, but he'll never sit down and go, right, at eight o'clock, do this. At nine o'clock, do that. Never. He, You wouldn't be there if you wasn't the best. That's it. People always ask me, what's the secret to Mary Hearn's success? He knows how to employ people. He knows the right people to employ. Thankfully, both his son and his daughter have got the same quality. They know exactly what to do, who to employ, who's loyal to them, who works with them. So pretty much John Highland retired from promoting. Um, I wasn't working for Maloney, but I was working for Barry. And Barry had other other sports. And I ended up, because I put a lot of uh, keenness into it all, and and I learned very quick, you have to learn on your feet. I started to learn about pool, snooker, boxing, fishing, poker, you name it, we did it. Um, Let's bring it up to the present day. The world of sport so busy, and when you're good at snooker, boxing, darts, poker, but and three events are on the same night. Where do you go? What do you do? The three major events are on the same night, all run by the same promoter. Where do you go? So I'm kind of like, hands up. You tell me what you want me to do. Barry's interest in the darts. He got me in in 2004 to do an event. It was a complete disaster. No thought of our own, one of the players in their head-to-head, sadly, was taken very ill and was very ill. In fact, very nearly died. Um, He was playing, Andy Fordham was playing Phil Taylor. It was my first darts event I'd ever been to. I'd never been involved in darts. I had a father that was a heavy drinker. I never went in pubs. I was never into anything like that. So I never grew up in a darts environment. I certainly didn't know how it worked, but I knew how to get a crowd going. And so they thought for this pay-per-view event, I would be the man. After a few minutes of play, Andy became unwell, asked for a timeout break. He went backstage and very nearly passed out. Um, Was taken very, very ill. I have a few medical qualifications I obtained when I was in the forces. I was on the scene. I didn't know him from Adam. I just literally minutes before introduced him in. Now he's laying on the floor outside in a car park in the back of a sports spot. Yeah, really bad. I took his carotid pulse. I couldn't get my hands around his wrist. He was a giant of a guy. Got the ambulance there. They come and checked him out. The whole show was more or less finished there and then. We did the presentation to Phil Taylor. He'd won. He'd by be it by default, but it was a very testing night. And I'd had some testing nights before in boxing. I was there when boxers had collapsed at ringside and found myself first on the scene, gumshield out, you know, trying to get teams to work on them, trying to clear the ring. I was the first person as an MC to insist that the paramedic team did a full evacuation drill before the boxing started. I was the first person that implemented that because I'd been at boxing when the paramedic didn't know how to get in the ring. And then he went to get in with a rucksack on his back and couldn't get in the ring because there was no room. So I, I dreaded those seconds lost and we always insisted on it. And, uh, I was driving home that night and Barry called me and said, what a great job, well done. And I was like, that was a disaster. And he's like, no, it wasn't. You know, these things happen. The way you handled it was perfect. I've got this great idea. I'm really going to get involved in this darts. I want you to come with me and I want you to get as involved as me. And I'm thinking, I've just had the worst night's work I've ever had in my life. But Barry is such a great convincer. You know, he really is. I'm sure he could make the blind see. You know, I mean, he's that good. And he's like changed, talking on the He's changed the face of all of these sports that you're talking oh, about. Of course, because the thing that people don't know about Barry Hearn, and I'll tell you quite honestly, and I'm, I'm not speaking out of turn, he won't do anything he doesn't like and doesn't enjoy. Fair enough. And he gets... He had, I don't know, at his 60th birthday, which was a bash, like no bash on earth, he had maybe 80 top guests. Top guests. I'm talking about A-listing guests. He was more thrilled when he saw his first boxing champion, Mark Reefer, that evening. Because when he got a title shot for Mark, he said to him, you've got enough money to buy a house. And he went and bought a house. And Barry was so thrilled. He changed this guy's life, you know, and I was like, wow, that's that's really something, you know, that's really something to be able to do that. And so for me personally, that was me. I'm in the darts now and I'm thinking, you know, oh, how is this going to be? And I remember it was going to take time because there was a guy already there. And so it was a case of what I'll do, John, when I can, I'll get you in. Uh, They're not getting any younger. You're the sort of next thing coming along, but maybe it would be a good idea if you start to get ready for it. I can see there's going to be a swap over period. And, And that period came in 2005. I was working in China for Barry, big event. He called and said, there'd been a problem and I needed to cover the world match play at Blackpool which the players will tell you is the Holy Grail. You know, it's a bit like, um, I suppose, it's a bit like winning the league, winning the FA Cup. What's more important? You know, it's a bit like that. So I land on the Saturday and on the Sunday, I'm in Blackpool ready to start the world match play. Nine days in Blackpool. Never even been to Blackpool. <laughs> you know, so we're for are, me, culture shocks coming. Quite a lively place. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm actually grown to really like the place because Blackpool, for us, in the darts world, it's like Groundhog Day because people have the chance to buy a season ticket. So we see the same people all the time. And you've got to admire their loyalty to the game and their knowledge. And so, for me personally, it's one of my favourites. Now, a lot of people say, oh, I don't like Blackpool, I don't like the hen do, the stag do... Blackpool is a magnificent place. It's got beautiful gardens and parks, and there's the seafront, and it's just t- terrific. So I've always had it as a little. Fun and a lot of my
0: my childhood holidays. My mum, we would go to Blackpool. So I've got lots. Yeah. I mean, I don't get me wrong. It's got some. Uh, it's got some characters along the strip that you bump into, but yeah. it's uh, it's
1: all it's all fu- it's all fun and games. It is. It is. And it's. Um, I mean, we're hoping this year in July that we're back there again. As per normal, let's fingers crossed that everything will be quite quite back to normal by the July of this year. So fingers crossed for that. So I end up doing this event. And um, and I've got to say, it was an eye-opener. But more than an eye-opener, I got to see it over a longer period. And I could see what Barry meant. My baptism into darts really couldn't have been worse. Um, I wasn't comfortable. I didn't really like the idea of it, and, but I, I was thinking every day would be like that, and of course it wouldn't. And I came away from Blackpool, and Barry said, "Look, this Premier League is going to be something special. I really want you to do that. That's a new event. I can get you in. Um, would you?" And I was like, "Oh, I don't know." You know, in the end, it boiled down to two things: a, I got very well looked after, and I don't just mean financially, I mean very well looked after by the staff. I was really accepted as a member of the team, which is what I'd craved really, having left the military. I craved a family teamwork background. I noticed that Barry had employed really good people, people that I could associate with, I could work with. One in particular, the CEO, Matt Porter, a lot of of people thought he was too young different class the youngest ever chief executive in the football league the youngest ever member of the football league committee this guy's forgotten more about sport than most people know and he's still very young And working with him and I love youngsters I love them I love the enthusiasm of young sportsmen and women I'm lucky enough to have a professional footballer son a professional golfer son um, I've been really lucky I've been with my sport especially with my my young with my own children. So that was that, um, I'm in. And um, it soon become apparent with the World Series and other events we invented along the way that this is no job for someone that can just come and go when he pleases. You know, this is a important job. And you can't do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday on the snooker, go off to Berlin, do the darts on Thursday, come back Friday, hopefully get there for the afternoon session. If you don't, do the evening session in the snooker and you're working on the darts. Everybody feels like the poor relation. It, I was tr- I was always trying to balance the book. Same in the boxing. I couldn't get there to this fight. Could I get there? I can come to the fight, can't do the weighing. All of this was happening all the time, and it was becoming very difficult. In the end, I had to make the decision. What do I do? So you're better off, I think, in sport, you're better off, certainly in my position, um, having one job that you can concentrate on that you can get stability and continuity with and maybe stay with that. And I talked it over with a number of people in sport, really big names in sport. I asked their advice and they were like, I think you've got to do it. So I brought you right up to the date. Um, been full time with them ever since. It's a sport that um, I stick up for with great dignity because it's a, it's a very unusual sport. There's not a great deal known about it. People see the great night out. Five or six guys after work, they're in the bar, they watch it on the TV, they go, oh, I want some of that. They don't really know how it all works. You can be booed one minute and cheered the next. There's no evil rivalry. There's evil rivalry in every game. Some like this player, some don't like that player. It's the roller coaster of all sports. And it's so friendly to fans. It's so up close. The players are just so ordinary, down to earth. There's nothing pretentious about them. They're just a great bunch. And I think we're only part of the way to how big it will be and where it will grow. So it's been the most amazing ride, really, watching it go from a small sports arena to a massive Shakal Stadium, Germany, 22,000 people. We do every arena in the country on this Premier League. We go Manchester, Liverpool, Glasgow, Aberdeen, Cardiff. We go everywhere, down to Exeter. It's just, we try and cover the entire country. I've got a group of mates that go down to the the Ali Pally, all the way
0: from Glasgow. A good 15, 20 of them get together. They do their collection. They get their travel sorted. And they go down for the weekend. And they absolutely love it.
1: Well, it's I've done every one of Ali Pali, because the first world championship I did was the first day they moved to Ali Pali. Okay. So Ali Pali's been the home of the world championship for my entire career. And it's not an unusual venue for Darts because they held a massive tournament there called the News of the World, long before my time and yours. Um was a massive tournament. And so it's been kind of the ancestral home of Darts similar to the Crucible is for snooker yeah, and Lords is for cricket. Wembley is for football, you know, and so on and so forth. So, you know, you get these, it, it, it has a feel about it. And um I got to say, when you do something every day, the same, there might be some complacency sets in. What I've got to say, that's never been my plan. I wake up every day and I think, What more can I do? What more can I give it? Because I love the reaction of those people. For them, it's the highlight of their year. For me, it's just another day. So I have to take that out of the equation and think, when they come up to me and they all say it, you got the best job in the world. And I think, yeah, i got here at nine. I'm going to get out of here at midnight. I've got (laughs) a great job. I haven't seen my family for three weeks. It all seems fun seeing you
0: up on stage doing yeah. your thing for a couple of hours when it's live, yeah. but they don't see what
1: goes into it before no. and after. Of course, of course not. And like all things, we're always, always trying to make it better. Not always make it different, but make it better. So we'll try stuff and they'll think about it and they'll go, oh, I don't know, did that work? Did it not work? So we've got a team that have worked together since day one, and we're still going, what do you think? Yesterday, one of the production crew said to me, what do you think of the set? Now that's a bit like asking an extra on a Hollywood movie, how do you think the next scene's gonna go? You know, it's that bizarre. What on earth do they think they were gonna get from me or the ref or the marker and the player? What do they think we could bring? What we can bring is like that great philosophy they have at the 3Ms, the Minnesota Mining Company. They have their annual general meeting. They bring in the cleaner. They bring in a car park attendant. How can we make this product better? And That's really their secret. We're always looking to make it better. It's great to listen to you
0: talking about so many different things, John. You've talked about Loyalty. You've talked about what I love about Matchroom and Barry Hearn, and what you're talking about is I love the way he wants your talent to shine, and I think that is a is a reason why Matchroom Sport are as good as they are because they're using the talent that they have at their disposal. You know, they're not dictators, Mm. and they're you know people like yourself. They're asking for your opinion. You you know I thought it was really cool the way one of the events went went really wrong. Um, and you know you stepped up and, and Barry applauded you for that and i think that's that that's important it allows employees to then evolve as people and do more so it's uh it's, it's certainly no secret why max are is good as they are and and barry's obviously the driving force behind it but he's obviously brought on so many different people and mm. they've evolved as people and that, that's 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 great to hear what i wanted to ask you was you've been around boxing snooker Darts, you name it—fishing, um, bowling, pool—you name it, you've done it. Any funny stories in the locker? Must yeah, be
1: a- there's hundreds, hundreds. Some I could never say. Yeah, some, I understand that. And some, like Barry often says, you know, about writing a book. Oh, a lot more people have got to die yet before I can tell that story, you know, and stuff like that. But no, I've had some incredible times. I had one situation which which makes me laugh when I think about it at the time. But you know. Sometimes when you're thrown in the deep end, you perform best um, without any um, pre-notice. You know, if you're told weeks in advance you're going to be doing this, you start to panic a bit. Oh, maybe you know, am I good enough? Should I be doing that? What will I say? What will it look? What will it look like? I'm out of. So, on this particular occasion, I had um, massive tournament in the Philippines in a shopping centre. Filipinos at the time we was there, Paul. Ranked, life went like this. Paul, breathing, family. So Paul was first. And they had two great players. They had Efren Reyes, the magician, and Bustamente. Now, they were Team Philippines, and they'd got into the final of the World Cup. This shopping centre, the roof nearly come off. So they're on every balcony looking down on the pool table. We're live on Fox uh, or ESPN. It was a big do. The game's finished and I'm thinking, well, that's it for the day now because now tomorrow will be the final and we'll all be finished. And we started early in the morning about 11 and we finished about four in the afternoon. And it's now about quarter to four and we've had the perfect ending to the day. And they're still cheering and the crowd's still cheering. And the director said to me, go on and interview them. So I'm like, okay. So I grab a microphone and I walk on and I go, well, how about that? What a fantastic win for the Philippines on home territory. What an amazing match. Well, as I can see, both players have joined me now and that you must be absolutely delighted. You're into the final in front of your home crowd. How does it feel, Efren? And he looked at me and said, it's okay if I speak Tagalog, which is the local dialect. And I, for some reason said, yes. With that, him and Bustamante, that's either side of me, rabbit on in Tagalog. I haven't got the slightest idea what they're saying but I'm nodding my head. Oh, yeah. And I've looked at some friends of mine at work in the production and the press officer, and the press officer, Luke Ritchie who's normally a very, very composed, laid-back guy, anybody that knows him, and if he listens, he know what I'm saying. He's so casual, real George Clooney of the world of press officers. He's on his hands and knees beating the floor. And I'm thinking... What have I done? When do I interrupt to go, well, that's it from all of us here until the next time, you know? And then I've got the director saying, ask them another question. Well, it doesn't matter what I asked them. I don't even know what they're saying. So with that, I kind of like grab their arms and sort of like, and I go, well, it's going to be a massive day tomorrow. How do you think it's going to go? And Efren looks at me and goes, Tagalog, and I said, no, you can't speak in Tagalog, you've got to speak in English, because I can't understand you, which brought the place to a standstill, you know, and then he goes, well, I'm really looking forward to it, it's going to be a great final, can't do it without the crowd, blah, 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 everyone finishes on a big high and a cheer, I walk off and can't believe the embarrassment, I think I'm about to burst, and Luke can't breathe, so he's on the floor, and he looks up at me and he says, why was you nodding, I said, I didn't know what else to do. I just stand there. But but you know, sometimes in sport, nothing said's better than something said, you know. I had a fight once. I was doing this fight in a leisure center in Nottingham. And there was an African boxer, and I worked very closely with two African boxers, got very, very close to Azuma Nelson, thanks to Frank Warren and Barry Hearn, because they both promoted him. And when he came over, we just become friends and that was it. We're still friends for life. And I traveled a bit with Azuma and I've been to his home many times in Ghana, and we become really good friends. The story should really start, and it's how it really started, which was three o'clock in the morning on a rainy night, uh, rainy early hours, when there was a knock at my front door. This is a bit unusual, it's three in the morning, I look at my watch and I'm like, who the hell's that? I come down the stairs and I look through my little hole in the door and there's this black guy standing there with a hoodie soaking wet and I go, what do you want? And he goes, Coach, it's me. And I go, who's me? It's Eric. Azuma and Alfred Cote have sent me from Africa. So I'm thinking, well, unless he's a mind reader, he wouldn't know I know those guys. He's got to be okay. I open the door and in comes this wet boxer. I live 45 miles away from Gatwick Airport. He landed at Gatwick at nine o'clock in the evening and walked to my house. Bloody hell with one bag, couldn't believe it. i got him inside and he was freezing cold, soaking wet from head to foot. He said, I only had your address and I kept every time I saw somebody, I asked them, where is this? And they said, keep going, keep going. And eventually found my house and my wife's like, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to get him a hot shower, give him a tracksuit or something to wear he can sleep on the couch and in the morning I'll sort it out. So I got him a hot drink and some sandwich and some food and he went and showered downstairs. I had a shower downstairs. He showered and he came back up put a tracksuit on and he had his hot drink and his sandwich and he pillar and a blanket and he, off he went to sleep. And the next morning I woke up and I thought it was a dream. I was like, what the hell happened last night? And I come downstairs and there's Eric sitting up, you know, Thank you. Thank you, coach. I don't know why he calls me coach. They'll call you coach. I don't want to call you coach. I don't coach him at all. But what am I going to do? So I phoned a very good friend um, who, sadly, we lost a couple of years ago, Dean Powell. And I said, he was a great matchmaker, probably. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn. He was the man to turn to in boxing. And I said to him, look, I've got this kid, Eric Odomassi. He's had a handful of fights. He's unbeaten. He can clearly fight. Azuma and Alfred Coach, he said, come to England. Go to England. And see John McDonald, and he'll look after you. That's pretty much his brief. So Dean said, well, look, send him up to see this Ghanaian man that lived in South London who looked after Ghanaian boxers. He said, I'll see what I can do. Well, this kid could fight. So six months down the line, I hadn't heard from him. He was, I understood, he was very happy where he was living and he was training and he was, and the next thing I know, I do a weigh-in, and I notice that there's a. Um, I notice that there's a a, um, a change of opponent, and I look, and there's this Eric Odomassi, and I thought to myself, well, this is quite strange because I haven't seen the guy. Excuse me one second. I just got to check. Somebody's at the door. It's probably going to be no, someone. No room. Give me one second. No problem. No problem. So the the boxer was Eric Odomassi, who I hadn't seen for six months. So he's obviously, um, he's turned up and uh, he's going to be fighting on the bill. And the director said to me, look, what we could do with really is doing this as a kind of live fight. And then if the main event goes short, we can put it in. So do all the trimmings. I said, okay. So he comes up to me earlier in the day and says, I can't thank you enough for what you did. Without you, I, I said, look, look, stop, stop. I didn't do anything. Don't worry. He said, but I got you something. I said, I don't want anything. I don't need anything. You know, seriously, don't worry. Just enjoy yourself. So he's like, but I, I owe you something. So I said, you don't owe me anything. You know." So anyway, we, um, we get to the point where he gets introduced. And I introduce him and I go something like, and now, ladies and gentlemen, it's an international featherweight contest introducing to you from Ghana, Booker, Macra, West Africa, the Buffalo, Eric O'Domasi. He collapses to the floor, makes out this horrendous scream, and comes on his hands and knees towards me, right? So I look down and I'm like, really? And and I and I start laughing. And of course, the whole world's seen it because then it was on. It'll be all right in the night. It was on when sports programs go wrong, Soccer AM, the all-sports show. It was seen all over the world. And people actually were saying, oh, I thought that was great the other week when you was laughing. And and it, it absolutely ruined me, really, because everybody just thought I was this quivering wreck that just couldn't stop laughing. And I couldn't. You know, I really couldn't stop laughing. It was just... One of the most bizarre things I've ever had happen to me in my life and it, on TV as well. But luckily, it was recorded. So they realized that I'd lost it. And so. Why, why, why
0: did it? Why, why? What was it? I don't know.
1: It was kind of like a tribal thing. He just thought he had to get on it. It was like on his hands and knees. You'll have to watch it on YouTube or yeah. maybe add it to the program. It's so funny. But what they didn't know was I was hopeless for about three minutes of laughter, fits of laughter, was unable to breathe, you know? And that was, um, I was the sort of laughing stock of the world really at that point. And they would get about a million hits on this thing and then Sky would take it down and then it would go up again and someone else would put it up and then someone else would bring it down and so oh, all right, we own that, you know, that can come off. And then it would go, appear again. And so people were actually, I've got a cult following people going, it's on, it's back on YouTube. Oh no, it's off, you know, it's back on YouTube. It's off, oh God. I will, that, certainly, I will certainly
0: be YouTube and that as soon as I get yeah. off. Yeah, MC gets of- the giggles it's normally under or something
1: like that, yeah. Yeah. Couple of
0: couple of great stories there. you know you are in the limelight. You are at the you are the centerpiece of whenever anything takes place, i.e. in the snooker, the darts, when you you know, if things go slightly wrong, you uh you know, i.e. somebody talking Filipino or what the language you mentioned there. Yeah, tagalog, yeah. Tagalog, you know, you're not gonna you are not going to you got roll with it. You can't just uh, uh, stop No, of course not. No, yeah. No, so great. you know, you done you've done well in both those, and you know. Things like that. I'm sure the grandkids all have had the giggle at seeing you taking a bit of a a red face.
1: It's weird because my children have more or less grown up with me on television. My grandkids have grown up with me on television. They actually don't think it's strange at all. They think it's quite normal. I remember when I first started the boxing, my eldest boy was a boxer, amateur boxer. He got to the quarterfinals of the ABAs, actually, my eldest boy. And he... um. When he went to his first senior school, one day there was a knock at the door, and I thought, who's knocking at the door? You know, all my kids had their keys. And I opened the door, and he was stood there with about eight friends. And he said, that's my dad. And they looked at me, and they said, oh, yeah, it is him, yeah, it is him. And then all went home. I said, oh, like, dad's show and tell, you know. My dad's a boxing announcer. Nah, he's not. Yeah, yeah, he is. Come around my house, I'll show you him, you know, like he's some pet. and Like, I'm the sort of, I'm like the monk, the chimpanzee that does a trick, you know, like whatever next. When your kids grow up with it, it, it doesn't mean anything to them. You know, in fact, people have said to my wife, oh, I saw your husband on telly yesterday. And he, she'd say, did you? I, I don't know. Was it, where was it? I don't know. She doesn't, you know, nobody it's really. Normal. It's, it's, normal. Normal. it's normal because it's my job. You know, it's just normal, isn't it? And it's like when people meet me or they see me work an event that's maybe not on telly like a, a charity event or an, you know, maybe an, an evening or something like that. They go, oh, I never realised you were so funny or I never realised you were so nice. And you think, really? What did you think I was, you know? Yeah, I didn't realise you were... spoke like that, you know? You think, well, how do I speak? You know, I can only speak how I speak. Yeah, it's because your your, your job
0: is that, you know, you're introducing people, you're there to get... People probably don't really get to, to know you deep, deep down. Like today, speaking to you, I didn't know... How you would come across because I've just seen you on TV. Mm. You're a great chap. You've got some great some great banter. But 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 prior to this, I just knew you were very very good at your job. You know you, you're fantastic at getting a crowd going. I've watched you in TV for years, but until you actually get to sit down and, and talk to the talk to the man behind the voice yeah. and, uh, and and on screen, it's it's very it's very interesting. Something I really want to touch on. We um we spoke about it before. We uh we got to got to doing this recording and I wanna I want the the listeners to hear more about it. It's an an initiative you've got that's coming out, and it's launching soon. That's kind of a, a charity support, funding kind of support. You can explain more, but it's to do with professional sports people from all different sports mm-hmm. and how the transition happens from being a professional sports person into the real world, which by the way can be very, very daunting and probably has a massive effect on a lot
1: of these people's mental health, et cetera. But please, please tell me more about it. Yeah, so uh, for, for uh, I've always supported military charities. Uh, becoming uh, having been a, an injured soldier. I know how important it is for support in that field. And I met up with a, uh, with a friend of mine, a um, uh, former professional boxer, uh, Mickey Kempwell, who had worked for the union, trying to get boxers some representation from the union, some health cover, some... various advice and and we both sort of felt that there was a situation whereby there was there was plenty of um support for certain things and you might be able to get a grant to do this but really that doesn't solve the problem if you you know our our motto is um give them give a person a fish you feed them for the day give them a fishing rod you feed them for life so we realized that education was the key and we'd Um, courted a company for a long time a development company that have this incredible ability to find funding for people to educate themselves and to do courses give themselves a better opportunity in the job market and so that's something that really hit for us because we thought you know what we work with sportsmen and women all day long i've got veterans um that I need to support. There's a big difference between having a military qualification and having a civilian qualification. And as you know, and I know the world, qualifications evolve as businesses evolve. I mean, when I was a kid, there was no it now it's a walk in the park for kids to pick up a computer, but you pick somebody maybe been in sport all their life and have relied on someone else dealing with that. Suddenly they've got to now find a solution to go to work. And I always say to sportsmen and women and veterans, this is a competition getting a job. It's just like competing. So if you're a good athlete, good boxer, good footballer, good rugby player, good cricket player, the minute that's finished, you now have to compete in the job market, which is exactly the same. You have to put the training in. You have to be better than anybody else. You have to be good at your job. Two Fridays ago, just before we spoke, we had the green light to form a non-profit business, it's not a charity, it's just a non-profit company that will supply sportsmen and women in sport and out of sport and their families, and this is an important issue, and veterans and their families with free education and free courses. Now, we know that if you attend Job Centre Plus, you might be able to go and do your English and maths again, you might be able to do another course, or you might be able to do But with us, we're encouraging the whole family to support you and get you through. When you talk to a sportsman or woman or a veteran, all they ever wanted to do was what they did. They wanted to play football. They wanted to box. They wanted to join the military. They wanted to join the Air Force, the Navy. That's all they're interested in. If you talk about going back to school, their school life was the worst life ever because all they wanted to do was go out and play and get it done. So we've had to think of ways around it. So the Learn Together scheme is a great idea. The fact that it's free is even more important. The fact that you can do more of one course is even more important. And the best of it all is with this lockdown we've had, most, if not all, are online. So that's our next move. We intend to, um, which we've done, we've set up a great website. We'll involve some really good sporting stories on the website so that we encourage people to come. And we'll do some stories about people that have attended the courses and done well. That should encourage others to join. I've linked up with the PDPA, the Professional Dark Players Association, because I'm with them all the time. We had a Zoom, big Zoom meeting with um, the development company ourselves and them, and they're fully appreciative of what we're doing. So they're fully behind it. We're absolutely thrilled with that. It's just a matter of time to move on. Now, we're going to launch the website very soon. We've done a test so we know that everything works. So basically, you'll come to the site, You'll look on the site, and there'll be a list of our bog standard, run-of-the-mill courses you can attend free of charge. It doesn't matter whether you're on a sport pension. It doesn't matter whether you're on, um, it doesn't matter whether you're on uh, uh, grants from the local authority. It doesn't matter whether you're on uh, tax benefit from the government. Whether you're on uh, um, uh, your tax credits or whatever you're doing, you need to educate yourself and it's free and it won't affect your pensions credit whatever you do it can't affect you so we're hoping that that's going to be a winner and we're going to try and encourage people to do it by keeping in touch with them and helping them all the way so we recruited the help of a school teacher very well known school teacher who's who wrote a particular syllabus for uh, academy footballers so he's fully aware of how important education is not just in sport now, but when they retire, we're launching that very soon. I'm very, very excited about that. And I'm hoping that that really helps people. When they leave sport, we can give them something that they gave us. The enjoyment that they've given us and their dedication through their career and the service of our country, we can then go, well, do you know what? We're gonna do this for you. And we hope to run three or four fundraising evenings a year. We'll get everybody involved. And it's, there's nothing better than helping somebody along the way. Nothing. Nothing can come close. And if you can get someone a job and get them a qualification and find something different for them to do, because it can't all be pundits. They can't all go back to the club and coach. You know, if you lose 15 footballers out of your team in two seasons, you don't need 15 coaches because every two or three, you'll end up with more coaches than you've got fans. You know, there's got to be a limit and not everybody wants to do it. and some, Not everybody can do it. Some of the greatest footballers in the world wouldn't have the slightest idea how to run a football team. So that's what we're trying to do. And I'm very, very excited about that. It's called Future Pathway. The website will be ready very soon. I hope maybe you can do a link for us one day yeah. on your next, on your next um, podcast. Thinking, we're delighted about that. I'm already thinking of um,
0: people in Scotland that I know of who would benefit from something like this. Uh, I think it's a great initiative. Uh, I'm, I'm fully supportive of you on it. I think it's, there's a big gap there um, with with people, veterans and of course sports people coming out. It's, it's a very, you know, it's where a lot of, I think the mental health issues come and arise for a lot of these people. So to have an initiative like yours, um, I think is fantastic, non-judgmental. You know, you can you can go online, you can do this stuff and you can develop mm-hmm. yourself. Think it's absolutely fantastic. I wish you all the very best with it. Anything I can do to try and help, I would love to do so. Uh, it's been a, it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure, sir. Um, it, you know, I, I didn't know the man behind mm-hmm. the microphone. You no, know, you've you, you, you've done some phenomenal work. You continue to do some phenomenal work. You really have. You know, the, the darts is just huge now. I mean, I, I, I even I find myself now on a Friday night or whatever. It wasn't a sport I was into, but I'll get into it because it's, it's. you wouldn't think, you just wouldn't think it could be, I mean, I love the Crucible. I love the snooker. Love the late night watching the finals and yeah. when it gets really, but with the darts, it is equally so exciting. It takes ebbs and flows and the crowd and
1: everything. And and you tell so, you so many women, so many children, you know, we we at that world championship, we have a, a fan zone for kids. Oh, it's just a delight to see children there, women there. I'm a massive feminist and I just love to see women in sport and I love to see them come and watch. It's fantastic. I've got a friend who's had two daughters that are very good rugby players and and it's just so, it's such a a relief to see the dad. He's got two girls, you know. He'll never go to a football match. He'll never go to a boxing match. Yes, he will. They can do that. It's great. And we were the same on the darts. I mean, we had how women involved in the world championship, it was a thrill. It brings a different level to it. It's amazing. So for me to have it all inclusive like that, it's just great. And it's a sport that you want to be part of. You want to be part of it. It's a great party, but you know, in the real scheme of things we've had, we've got our youth academy are so good. Because now when people realize what you can get out of this sport, they want to do it. You know, kids are actually saying, oh, "I want to be a dart player." It's terrific.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh Fantastic. it's uh, there's some great, some great role models there that are have done some phenomenal things over the years. But look, you keep you keep doing your thing, sir. Please stay online my for just two minutes. I catch it, catch you at the end. But yeah. I thoroughly appreciate your time today. Pleasure, my pleasure. Good luck. Thank you.